This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I am Vladislav Lilich your host and a doctoral candidate in modern European history at Vanderbilt University. Today, I'm happy to welcome Anka Parvolescu and Manuela Blatka, co-authors of an extraordinary field-shifting new book, Creolizing the Modern, Transylvania Across Empires, just off the Cornell University Press. Dr. Blatka is a professor of sociology at the University of Freiburg in Germany, where she teaches and publishes widely on world systems analysis Decolonial Perspectives on Global Inequalities, Gender and Citizenship in Modernity and Coloniality, and the Geopolitics of Knowledge in Eastern Europe, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Dr. Parvolescu joins us from St. Louis, where she teaches at the Washington University's English Department. A prolific author, she has worked in the fields of literary theory and criticism, visual culture, female labor and migration, and the East-West relations in contemporary European history. The result of their sustained collaboration, Creolizing the Modern develops a comparative, multidisciplinary method for engaging with areas of the world that have inherited multiple conflicting imperial and anti-imperial histories. Transylvania, one such historical region at the intersection of the Habsburg Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Austria-Hungary, and Russia, has offered my today's guests a platform for a multi-level reading of topics that include the region's capitalist integration into global commercial circuits, anti-Semitism and the enslavement of Roma, multilingualism, gender relations, and religion. Using Livio Rebreanu's 1920 modernist novel, Yon, as an analytical point of departure and a chronicle of Transylvania's modernities, the co-authors provide innovative decolonial perspectives that aim to creolize modernity and the modern world system. Drs. Botka and Parvolescu, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me about your work. Oh, thank you so much for having us and for your interest in our book and your very kind introduction. Thank you so much for the invitation. We're really excited to be here, and we're fans of the New Books Network, so for once we're on the other side of the uh, 
listening experience. So good to hear, and the pleasure is all mine. Uh, as is customary on the channel, I will start us off by asking how this project initially came together. How did you decide to work together? And in addition, would you perhaps share some thoughts on the benefits and challenges of collaborative scholarly work in the social sciences and the humanities? Oh, thank, thank you for that question. Um, I, I can start. Uh, so Manuela and I met a few years ago and realized that we were working on very similar questions, but from different disciplinary angles. Uh, I work in comparative literature, where we take the concept of world literature as our object of study. Uh, Manuela works on world systems analysis. We both ask questions about the world as a unit of analysis and various modes of global circulation. We both had worked on migration. We both worked on Eastern Europe. We started writing an article together for a special issue edited by Laura Doyle for the Global Circulation Project. Um, that article became the heart of our book. Um, we, we simply started working and collaborating and did not stop after that. Uh, we finished the book during the pandemic with all the difficulties that entailed, and we are very, very happy to have it in hand um, right now. Yes, and um, if I can add to this the benefits and the disadvantages of um, collaborative work, for us, there were plenty of benefits, but the disadvantages were rather in the lack of um, kind of engagement with uh, interdisciplinary collaboration and the, the lack of really truly transdisciplinary projects and uh, the need to defend them uh, in our respective disciplinary settings. So um, in the beginning, I when we talked about constructing this book around uh, a novel, it was clear to me that sociologists would be very suspicious of such a project um, because it would only be, and even then only limited, uh, in a limited way acceptable if it was um, sociology of literature, which is not what we had in mind. And on the other hand, uh, working from comparative literature with um, sociological concepts, uh, there were lots of discussions for sure, um, we were really on the same wavelength relatively quickly, but in order to bring that to um, a common denominator that would talk to two different audiences, because they sometimes overlap, but not always, um, was time consuming, I would say, but a learning process for both of us. This brings a follow-up question to mind on the spot here. Do you think that these challenges uh, as as present in these more or less rigid sep separations or, or delimitations of different disciplines will also be reflected in how the book is received by, by different disciplines or sub-disciplines? Totally. <laughs> so we were lucky to have two recent book discussions at two conferences. Um, and we were just so grateful for the generosity uh, a number of our colleagues showed us uh, and, and, and our book. Uh, but as, you know, uh, uh, respondents went, uh, went around and offered comments from history, from literature, from sociology, it was just very clear that, you know, responses to the book are framed by disciplinary standards. I think everybody was excited to be crossing those disciplinary boundaries, but at the same time, it was just very visible that they are there. 
Yeah, I, this is well, Dr. Bodka, please. Yes. Now, on the other hand, um, we are also able to steer this a little bit in that we also do not just want to talk to um, audiences that um, understand themselves strictly as disciplinary. So that also includes not presenting at um, just um, the conference of the main conference of the discipline of each of our disciplines, because then for sure the other um, side of the argument would be exposed to an unfair kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe kind of battery of, of questions and comments and criticisms. And so the interest part for us is not only to have an interdisciplinary transdisciplinary project but also to talk to transdisciplinary audiences and um, whatever we do there will be a perspective that uh, brings us more insights that we are also not at home in Um, there's a lot of history in the book neither of us is a historian but um, there's no other way but to tackle um, the questions we're dealing with from the perspective um, of a historically minded comparative literary scholar and um, historical sociologist Um, so the history is there but not as a discipline so we're trying to be consistent in that I also feel that this may prove to be a a blessing in disguise because the book will definitely invite and generate, facilitate conversations that would otherwise not have taken place. Um, So you set out to use Transylvania as a new methodology, as you put it. So how can a region become a method? And how can such quote-unquote marginal spaces help us obtain a deeper or creolized understanding of key scholarly concepts that we all use in our works, uh, regardless of our disciplines and disciplinary backgrounds, such as modernity, Europe, nation, capitalism? Yes, thank you so much for this question. Um, It's at the core of our project. And we come to it um, from two mm, different but very compatible um, directions. And one is from the point of view of sociology and understanding of modernity um, that has been central to the uh, conceptualization of the discipline, so sociology as the study of modern society. And on the other hand, from literary studies, um, the question of modernism and the centrality of uh, something like the first modern novel uh, for literary canons. And uh, Rebranos Ion is this first modern novel in the case of Romania, or at least that has been um, discussed as such. So what we're interested in is how can we deal with the question of modernity uh, in the modern world system and modernism in uh, modernist literature um, from the perspective of Transylvania. And what that does to the project of understanding modernity, but also the wider project of understanding Europe is that it productively complicates these notions. We have been taught in um, the social sciences more generally, not just the sociology, to think of modernity as something that is um, the opposite of the rural. Becoming modern means leaving the village behind, becoming urban, becoming industrialized, becoming um, actually westernized in many ways. in a teleology that follows certain rules. What we like to show with the um, focus on a novel centered on a village is that the village and the rural as such is inseparable from the modern, that there's no modernity without um, the 
labor performed in the village without the structure offered by um, rurality to not only a part of the world that has been always described as primarily or predominantly uh, agrarian, but to the functioning of a modern world system that is premised on having both, on having industrialized cores and having semi-peripheries that are partially industrialized and partially reliant on agrarian labor, on having peripheries that are mined for raw materials and so on. And here the question of Transylvania comes in um, very centrally as a way of thinking Europe from one of its most under-theorized peripheries and one that is predominantly rural, at least at the time that we're talking about. So our project is one of reinscribing the rural and um, reinscribing peripheral and semi-peripheral histories into the understanding of the modern and the becoming of modernity. And we use the term creolization for that, that we borrow from um, studies on the Caribbean, but understand it as a way of productively complicating notions of Europe to mean more than just the European core, to mean more than just the urban, the industrialized, and um, the Western. Uh, Thank you. I I can add a few things to that. I start by sharing that um, I regularly teach a course on what I call the first modern novel, mm-hmm. uh, tracing what counts as the first modern novel in various literary traditions. And the premise is that the first novel, right, whatever is called that within various literary traditions, opens up a conversation about modernity. So although it might seem like we might narrow the conversation down when we write about a novel, right, the first novel in the Romanian language, we in fact found that uh, the conversation uh, opens up a comparative account, right, because many cultures have such a text. Um, So the project here is to creolize the concept of the modern in both the modern world system, as Manuela was saying, and in literary modernism by rereading what we call a small canon, right, that is otherwise hijacked by national literary history. Um, We do examine Rebranu's novel as an example of a minor text, right, Uh, in an effort to rethink what minorness means, uh, in, in the context of world literature and to model the kind of sustained critical work that can be advanced alongside such a minor text. The fact that the novel is highly canonical in Romanian literature, right, in, a, uh, in Romanian literary criticism, yet it remains minor in the global perspective, is arguably a predicament that it shares with a large majority of literary texts in the world. Right. In other words, the text is not exceptional. It, it is representative of what happens to such uh, national texts within the context of world literature. Um, and from a literary studies perspective, one of our aims is to theorize the question of the canon in a so-called minor literature or small literature and to place this conversation on canonicity in relation to debates we are having about the canon of global modernism more broadly. Inter-imperiality is both Transylvania's historical condition, as you show so forcefully, and the book's key analytical category. So how do you mobilize this historical experience of ethnic diversity and multilingualism across empires to challenge received wisdom about such 
enormous, huge, looming concepts as coloniality, post-coloniality, and imperialism itself? Thank you for that question. It is a broad question, so I'll, I'll offer some initial thoughts. Um, so on the concept of uh, interimperiality, we engaged the book published by Laura Doyle titled Interimperiality in 2020. Uh, this is a book we greatly, uh, we greatly admire. Um, and from a different angle, we are also inspired by a book co-edited by Xu Mei Xu, uh, also a few years ago, titled Comparatizing Taiwan, uh, which places Taiwan and comparatively other regions of the world at the intersection of a number of empires. So in dialogue both with Doyle and Xu, uh, and in the context of these debates, we realized that the term interimperiality captures something that historians of Eastern Europe have been aware of for a long time, right? The fact that in many parts of Eastern Europe, Transylvania included, but we can we could think here of Western Ukraine as well, uh, historical Galicia. Uh, it has mostly been a question of not whether an empire was in charge, but rather which empire. Um, and very much, you know, what we call agency in these situations has been a matter of negotiating between empires and often pitting one empire against another, right? So the whole uh, uh, conversation around the concept of interimperiality resonated with what we know about the history of the region. Um, cultural and social forms in, in, in such regions very much develop in between imperial spaces, right? And one of the examples we give that remains eloquent as a symptom of interimperiality is multilingualism. Uh, we spend a chapter of the book develop it, developing the concept of interglottism, which we uh, see as a kind of a subset of interimperiality, the situation of being between languages, right, uh, in, in the aftermath of, of a history that developed uh, across empires. So interimperiality helps us understand regions of the world like Transylvania that have not uh, really been legible to a post-colonial or decolonial lens. And to that, um, I would add a kind of um, engagement with the notions of post-coloniality and decoloniality um, that have led us to um, including interimperiality as a central part of the conversation, given that um, Latin American theorists of decoloniality were critical of the post-colonial studies um, focus on primarily British colonialism or former mm -hmm, British mm -hmm. colonies, and then saying um, maintaining an Atlantic focus there, um, the emphasis was on uh, looking at Iberian colonialism as a period that constitutes what Enrique Husserl has called the early, um, sorry, the first modernity. Uh, so early modernity in that sense would be one that is not industrial, that is not um, British hegemony, but that, that is Iberian uh, colonialism that sets the stage for um, the um, extracting of resources that are then uh, used into, um, that go into British um, industrialization. Now, um, that Atlantic focus leads to um, kind of an overemphasis of the European colonial expansion. And um, here, um, Laura Doyle's and Xu Mei Xu's call to um, complement that focus with comparative work on non-European empires, uh, especially the spaces between various European and non-European imperial formations is um, kind of a very important intervention. This is why it caught our attention. But nevertheless, um, this 
shift from the Atlantic focus to uh, the Mughal Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Russia, Japan, and China is, again, um, kind of a step that goes over um, the east of Europe most of the time and into Asia, which leaves um, the east of Europe into what we've called in the book a mosaic of omissions of East Central Europe, um, that it's has its own historical and analytical relation um, placed at the intersection of coloniality and interimperiality. And because it is so muddled, because it is this um, European but semi-peripheral, um, peripheral and semi-peripheral but rural instead of um, urban, it is always kind of left out of discussions that have clearly led to either the rise to power of a um, colonial power or the um, kind of decline from power of a previous um, empire, because it is this in-betweenness that makes analysis more complicated, but it's precisely this in-betweenness that interests us. You stress that you're not historians by training, but as a historian myself, I found the, the book very helpful in playing or rethinking, revisiting chronologies, because uh, interimperiality helped me kind of revisit and 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 look at some common or or conventional chrono- chronologies about Eastern European history from a different perspective, from a different angle. You showed that interimperiality also predated coloniality, but also outlasted imperialism. So it's a very helpful notion to work with even within the historical discipline itself this is just a, a side note there um but yon the first romanian modernist novel supports your entire narrative arc uh, a remarkable window into transylvania's history of interimperiality the book touches on so many critical topics the question of land ownership interethnic tensions and racism multilingualism as already noted gender inequalities and violence, the place of religion in modern society. Would you care to elaborate on a few examples that illustrate how you have used this text to contend that Transylvania creolizes the modern? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, um, thank you for that question. Um, So I'll start by saying that we read and engaged a large interdisciplinary archive, histories, census data, debates in uh, various parliaments. Um, But as we started writing, we searched for an organizing principle that could function as a through line for our book, uh, offering um, um, uh, something as an organizing principle, a structure of sorts, right? Uh, So as we started writing, we settled on Reprianus Yon uh, as uh, as uh, as an anchor for for the book, uh, and that for for a range of reasons. Um, we engage it really as an extended case study that gives us a platform to place our various uh, theoretical arguments alongside the novel's narrative. 
right? Um, as a literary critic, that's quite important to me. Uh, narrative has an important pedagogical dimension. It often helps placate uh, the risk of uh, abstraction. Uh, and it, it really offers consequential details for literary and sociological analysis, right? Um we, um, we, we engage the novel as an extended archive, as a case study of a range of what Laura Doyle calls sedimented legacies uh, of uh, Transylvania's interimperial history. Um, and really um, see it as um, being both a product of interimperiality Right. In other words, it's it's a it's a kind of a, um, um, a literary witness to Transylvania's interimperial history, and uh, as um, a, a chronicle of interimperiality, it offers a representation of it. So we were really interested in this kind of dual dimension uh, of uh, of this text. Um, what it methodologically allows us to do is really oscillate, right? And we literally do this like, you know, in, in our chapters, but sometimes really at the level of the paragraph to oscillate between the scale of the textual detail and the scale of, you know, the world as, as a unit of analysis. Um, I'll stop there. There are a few more other things to say about like why, why this novel has been translated into a number of languages, um, it's um, uh, it's circulated therefore quite a bit, but remains minor within uh, the the canon of global modernism, and that really interested us as a kind of like you know what Franco Moretti calls the great unread. Why are certain texts like you know uh, who who are that which are translated and which circulate in fact not uh, not read by scholars of of global modernism, uh, right? And then. Um, um, the, the other kind of uh, angle into it is that this is a very, very canonical text of Romanian literary criticism. Uh, it's largely being read in a nationalist key. So the project here is really uh, to, to revise and reframe uh, the position this text has within Romanian culture uh, and uh, hopefully comparatively in, uh, in relation to other literary uh, canons. Uh, and and reframe it as a text of um, of world literature. Yeah, linked to that, um, the kind of debates about the intersection of world literature and coloniality um, are paralleled in sociology um, with debates on the intersection of um, world system and coloniality, and how that um, helps us think through several of the proposals that the whole systems perspective had, had put forth. But primarily for us, using the novel as um, our lens and our entry point into discussing Transylvania across empires has to do with the circulation of knowledge in both of these worlds, the world literature and the world system. And these are both um, interesting and, and important debates in both of our disciplines, because um, there is um, such a thing as a um, lack of embarrassment in not knowing um, anything about a specific part of the world or um, its history and knowing nothing about the East of Europe. Uh, and this is not um, something that puts a scholars to shame in a global North or Western context. So this lack of embarrassment signals 
what postcolonial theorists have called um, sanctioned ignorance or asymmetric ignorance. And for us, knowledge about Transylvania and about Eastern Europe more generally falls within um, the purview of such sanctioned ignorance. Not to have read the primary texts or to know the history, not to engage theory developed in languages from peripheral and semi-peripheral areas of the world are legitimate options because of a colonially and imperially enforced division of academic labor in the way knowledge circulates. So on the one hand, uh, you have theory producing metropole overwhelmingly associated with the global north that is credited with having the science, the concepts and the methods and the literary canon, um, as Walter Mignolo has put it. On the other hand, the periphery is reduced to a source of data and repository of myth, folklore and indigenous art, but that is not considered a legitimate um, source for concepts or canonical literature. It is just um, mined for data, uh, if you will. So um, that is how academic convention adheres to a canon of of theory in one or two languages, um, which is its own function of the international distribution of knowledge production. So we take up this question in relation to interimperiality by focusing on Rebrano's novel um, and also by engaging historians and theorists who write in Transylvanian languages as well as other so-called minor languages. Um, and for us, this is an intervention, a way of creolizing the theoretical conversation alongside a range of units of analysis. Could we further operationalize the way the, or the ways in which you use the novel to generate or support analysis or discussion of, of a myriad wonderful themes and topics, starting with land ownership and the peasants' hunger for land, or such interesting aspects of Transylvanian history as multilingualism, anti-Semitism, gendered violence, the place of religion. I mean, you can start anywhere because it's well nigh impossible to to summarize the, the wonderful chapters here, but just to tease our readers, uh, our listeners, and and perhaps transform them into into readers as well. Yes, thank you. You've given a wonderful overview already of um, the chapters, uh, but really, uh, starting with land ownership is kind of being um, both at the heart of the novel uh, yon that we're discussing, but also at at the heart of what 1920 Transylvania was uh, mostly about in terms of the struggle for land, which is something that has world historical um, implications and that that we look into, but is something that um, crystallizes around that time because um, the There were um, agrarian reforms after the abolition of um, serfdom in the Habsburg Empire, but it took a while until um, these measures um, had impact in Transylvania. Um, So peasants who had not been serfs um, were excluded from the land offered through the land reform. Um, So that meant that they were actually in the same or in a worse situation than before. Um, And those that did receive land often could not sustain themselves off the small plots. Uh, We're um, witnessing a period around the turn of the 20th century where there's um, huge um, population growth, increasing almost 50% in the second half of the 19th century. That means that the land that is there and that's already not sufficient is being increasingly fragmented because it's divided by the number of siblings that 
um, have um, a claim to it. So that means that um, there is a struggle for resources in which land is a primary one. And um, that is also a mirror or lens into um, how ethnicity and race play a role in um, kind of uh, the very material conditions of existence. Um, in Transylvania, land ownership was distributed unequally um, in, to what we call an, an inter-imperial rural population. There were Hungarians, Saxon, Romanians, Armenians, Jewish, and Romani peasants. Um, but there is a Hungarian nobility being or remaining the major landowner um, in Hungary. So there is an entire um, source of conflict that while it crystallizes or appears as ethnic conflict, it is a conflict about land. It is a conflict that um, is very clear um, for the um, character, the main character in, in the novel, because he belongs to um, a generation that has been promised land for centuries. But the abolition of serfdom, the very chronology, right, that you mentioned um, that um, inter-imperiality helps um, kind of clarify, the abolition of serfdom that was uh, supposed to create modernity, it had created paupers. It did not create proletarians, but also not kind of free, happy peasants, but paupers, rather. Mm-hmm. And this is where Ion comes in, and this is where the ethnicity and um, the land question intertwine, the land and property of land being also a condition for citizenship. Yeah, so um, uh, I'll, I'll add a few thoughts on the other chapters, um, kind of re- re-emphasizing one of, one of the points that Manuela just made. Right. So the history of Eastern Europe is often told um, as a mix of ethnic and class tensions, right? We revisit we, we this history with Transylvania as a case study to analyze it as a class, ethnic, and racial field. And on this last note, uh, we tell a story in two of our chapters about relational racialization. Uh, we show how anti-Semitism and anti-Roma racism uh, have been produced and sedimented in relation to each other, right? So we have two forms of racism that are pr- produced uh, in relation to each other. In chapter two, uh, we trace the integration, uh, a very particular kind of uh, capitalist integration as peripheralization of Transylvania through four modalities. We look at capitalist trade, the financial system, the imperial bu- uh, bureaucracy, and various forms of mobility, especially the rail system. Uh, and we show how anti-Semitism was amplified in the region through a process that further peripheralized the rural, largely Romanian-speaking population while promising Jewish emancipation by assimilation to the Hungarian language uh, and Hungarian um, bureaucracy. In chapter three, we trace the history of Roma enslavement in adjacent Moldova and Wallachia, from where formerly enslaved Roma often moved into Transylvania. We show that anti-Roma racism anchored in this history of enslavement traveled between Romanian-speaking populations in Moldova and Wallachia on one hand and Transylvania on the other. Um, as you mentioned, we dedicate chapters four and five to an analysis of the implication of interimperiality and gender. In one, we study uh, gendered violence, uh, violence against uh, against women that is tied to the fight for land. 
in the other, uh, we studied the limited access to a multilingual education uh, for women deemed guardians of the spirituality of the nation. Right? So although there is a kind of a widespread educational network that was available to women in the region in the early 20th century, uh, they often did not participate in it uh, on account of nationalist movements that tasked these women with the work of um, various nationalisms. And finally, in chapter six, uh, we analyzed the Transylvanian religious field, very, very complex religious field. Um, you might know that Transylvania is considered the birthplace of the concept of religious tolerance, very limited concept of tolerance. Um, and we focused there on the role of the Greek Orthodox priest in Rebranu's novel, but also just Greek Orthodoxy uh, more generally as a form of creolized religion in the region. And to that point, um, basically the understanding that uh, Transylvania is the um, ha a haven of tolerance, as it was often considered not only um, the, the haven, but the birthplace of the concept of uh, religious tolerance emerged um, around the time of the Counter-Reformation. What we show in the book is that um, this much celebrated um, understanding of uh, being a haven of toleration had its internal limitations, both before and after being encro encroached upon by coloniality, which precisely testifies to inter-imperiality and to its um, endurance. Because Greek Orthodoxy was not recognized as an accepted religion of the land. Um, its tolerated status led to um, struggles over religious uh, rights. Orthodox believers had their religion recognized um, only at the um, end of the 18th century with uh, the passing of Joseph. Joseph II's Edict of Toleration. The situation of Judaism oscillated. There were periods of persecution, periods of uh, tolerance, um, but Judaism was granted legal statute in Hungary only as late as 1895. Um, at the same time, um, the situation of the Roma in Transylvania uh, was one where they were required to forcefully assimilate, to renounce their dress and occupations, to attend Christian churches, and thus were designated as new Christians. And the same phrase was used in Habsburg, Spain, to refer to converted Moors. So we see there an arc that um, links inter-imperiality and coloniality by way of differentiating um, the other um, populations, right? It's uh, it's a way of marking the difference, and religious difference um, is marked by the newness of their Christianity. Um, so basically, what we see is that um, considering Transylvania the birthplace of the toleration speaks to a tension between a hierarchized range of inter-imperial religious options. And even though this has been a masterful holistic summary of the book's many narrative and analytical trajectories, I will still urge the listeners to go and get it now uh, because it's definitely worthy of anyone's time. Um, finally, where has creolizing the modern taken the two of you as, as scholars? Uh, what are you currently working on? Um, we didn't discuss the order of that question, <laughs> but Anka, do you want to go? Um, yeah, so um, we do have a number of article projects. Um, I uh, um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to 
uh, a series of events we have planned uh, that are very much discussions of this book. So uh, I'm afraid that the book is keeping us quite busy uh, uh, as, of, as of now. Uh, but I do think this is a long-term collaboration, and I very much look forward to see what's coming next for us. And on the other hand, we're being true to the um, idea of the book that it's not only collaboration, but it's also the idea of interglottism and translation that is important to us. So we're also now working on the German translation and um, in parallel, the Romanian translation of the novel. And we hope that uh, both uh, will be out by, well, hopefully the beginning of next year, uh, but next year for sure. Um, so that is one uh, important part of the being kept busy by the book still, although it's out, but it's not out in all the languages. We would uh, want our readers to receive it. Um, and the other um, kind of tentative project is one that has to do with the chapter on uh, Romani enslavement that uh, we're now also um, working on with um, Romani colleagues, um, especially with um, Adrian Nico Fortuna um, from Bucharest, um, that is not a concrete um, writing project right now, but kind of exploring the possibilities of delving deeper into the topic. Fascinating. Uh, Dr. Botka, Dr. Pavlescu, thank you so much for joining New Books in Eastern European Studies. It was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much.